Microsoft's battle for Activision Blizzard is moving to a federal courtroom. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool senior analyst Ron Gross and Andy Cross. Good to see you, as always, gentlemen. Hey, How Chris. You doing, Chris? we got the latest headlines from Wall Street, including the FTC suing to block Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar, but we begin once again with the big macro. Wholesale prices rose 0.3% in November, higher than economists were expecting. Friday's producer price index report capped a down week for investors. And Andy, we had been getting some signs that inflation was cooling off, and you see some of that reflected in this report, but you also see the cost of food continuing to rise. Yeah, Chris, you actually see a lot of it in this report. I mean, it, the prices, the producer prices, which are suppliers that charge businesses, and other customers before they get to the end customers like us, uh, for the, over the past year, those prices were up 7.4%. That's the lowest in 18 months. It was down from 8.1% in October. So again, year over year, the 0.3% number is November versus just the, pri- the, the October before that. So down 8.1% for October, month over month, or year over year, 8.2%. In September, year over year, and 8.7% in August. And if you look at the numbers, it basically has trended down pretty consistently year over year for the past few months. So those prices are moving down from the 11.7% we had, the record we had in March since they started tracking these numbers in 2010. So you saw the core numbers at the lowest of the year. That strips out the energy and food prices. You mentioned food prices are still increasing a lot, um, but it's still coming down. So we're seeing the trend. I, I see this. The trend is our friend in this number, but obviously, still, inflation is a challenge. I don't think this is going to necessarily change any um, uh, direction the Fed may have for later this month. I think that number is pretty much baked in to go maybe probably 50 basis points, another increasing. But we are starting to see these, these shifts. The good numbers continue to come down. We're seeing a lot in costs and services, including in costs and financial services, like brokerage services, investment advice. That The jump in that area contributed one-third of the increase in the services. And I'm just, thank goodness, this podcast right here from Molly Full Money is basically free. <laughs> You know, I think the silver lining is that folks are eating their vegetables because vegetable prices are up 38%. And that's a pretty big number that probably will not be sustained in the future. And, and I think that that is one, a one time, maybe two time artificially high number mm-hmm. um, that will help inflation to moderate. But I think what Andy said is right. The trend is. Good, but this is going to be a slog. We're not getting out of this overnight. Yep. Um, I don't think anyone is. Certainly not the Fed. Um, market is not cheap yet from a multiple price to earnings multiple multiple perspective. But we're we're getting cheaper. Uh, listen, I just want a Santa Claus rally and some modest appreciation for 2023. <laughs> is, can I can I get a little something? I think we all want that. But I go back to what you said at the start. There, it's going to be a slog, and yep. increasingly, it kind of feels that way. Yeah, I just think it's going to be this 
continued kind of range of volatility. It's going to be more and more volatile. It's going to be more of a stock picker's market. I think that benefits those of us who love investing in businesses. We're going to find prices attractive at certain points that we'll be able to buy, thinking about you know holding those businesses for the next five years. But over the next, I think, 12 to 18 months, we're just going to continue to be in this kind of volatile, uncertain moment that investors have to learn to live with. Inflation has some people cutting back on spending, and that affected Costco's first quarter results. Profit and revenue came in lower than expected, and Costco's operating expenses are also ticking up a bit, Ron. Yeah, a relatively weak quarter from one of my favorite companies, but maybe shouldn't be surprised on the heels of a worse than expected November sales report. Total company same store sales were up 6.6%, not too bad, but that's a pretty big deceleration from last year's 15% increase. I don't think anyone thought that number was sustainable, but we're seeing certainly a deceleration. US comp sales up 9.3%, Canada up 2.4%, but other international, all other international locations minus 3.1%. And for me, a surprise was to see e commerce down 3.7%. And the Weakness there was due to high single-digit declines in consumer electronics and appliances. I don't think I would have necessarily guessed um, seeing e-commerce down that much. Maybe a little bit of weakness, so that was a surprise. Traffic was up. Uh, average transaction size was up. So th- th- those both metrics are still moving in the same direction. Membership fee income was up almost six percent. So there's still plenty of, of good news, especially in things like retention rates, 92.5 percent in the U.S. So so the company's still getting it done, and the business model is very, very strong. It's just it's not putting up the kind of numbers it had been putting up. And this stock is never cheap. We say it all the time. It's over thirty times earnings, um, but you can't support that multiple with numbers like this. So the company's going to have to kind of get a little bit back in some some more growth mode there, especially I think in e-commerce. Third quarter profits and revenue for Lululemon came in higher than expected, but guidance for the holiday quarter was lower than Wall Street was hoping to see, and shares of Lululemon down 12% on Friday. Is that an overreaction, Andy? I know it's not a cheap stock, but the guidance wasn't lowered that much on a percentage basis. I don't think it's necessarily the guidance, Chris. I look at what is happening with the cash flows for Lululemon, and that's what really stood out for me for this report, because their sales were up 28%. That beat the guidance. Their earnings per share were $2 versus $1.62. That's up 23%. That beat the guidance, their their own guidance. And yeah, the, the guidance looking forward was somewhat like muted, maybe even a little conservative. But for me, it was really what's happening on the inventories. We've talked about this with retailers. Their inventories were up pretty dramatically just for the for the for the year to date. So for the last nine months, inventories have taken out eight hundred and thirty-two million dollars of cash flow for Lululemon versus this. $289 million for the same period ago. CapEx is up 62% versus a year ago. So while the business continues to do well, comps were up 22%. The direct-to-consumer was up 31%. The direct-to-consumer sales, that's one thing they continue to go directly to the consumers. That now represents 41% of sales versus 40%. They have some benefit on gross profit. They don't do a lot of markdowns, although markdowns are maybe a little bit higher. And they're very careful on pricing. But for me, this is really thinking about the cash flow. Their cash on the balance sheet fell to $353 million versus $994 million a year ago. In terms of moving the inventory, isn't that kind of a fine line they have to walk there? Because, as you said, they're very good about pricing. 
they start dropping the prices, that could move the inventory. Well, definitely, and their inventories were up 85% versus the same period a year ago, and up 38% if you look at over over a three-year period. But they did that on purpose because they thought they were too lean last year. It's a strategic decision to build out those inventories, and they're expecting their inventories to increase about 60% next quarter. So they are continuing to stock their own warehouse shelves, but that's a cost for investments. Now, I think the business is doing still pretty well. It's actually priced at around 32 times next year's earnings. So, for a company that can grow like that, it's not too inexpensive. RH had a little something for everyone this week. Third quarter profits and revenue for the company formerly known as Restoration Hardware came in higher than expected, but management said weakness in the housing market will adversely affect the business in 2023. What do you think, Ron? I thought the report was relatively weak. The shares are down a whopping 57% from their 52-week high, but that's after having a pretty stellar performance for years and years and years. But the report left some things to be desired. Revenue was down 14%. Gross margins narrowed by half a percentage point. That was primarily due to fixed occupancy costs. Revenue gets weak, so you deleverage from from a expense perspective. Operating margins were down. 6.9 percentage points. That's a huge number. And it's primarily as a result of investments in RH Contemporary, RH Guesthouse, RH International, and the rollout of RH In Your Home. I RH personally think they're doing too much, and they better calm down and stick to their knitting, I think, a little bit. Get get the business back in growth mode. Adjusted earnings down 19%. As you said, management. Uh, Sees some continued weakness on the horizon. They characterize these results as better than expected. Hmm, okay, uh, that's putting a nice silver lining on it. I think they have some work to do just to get the business back into growth mode. You wouldn't know it from the overall market, but two stocks hit new highs this week. Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. After a rough 2022, DocuSign appears to be ending the year on a positive note. Third quarter results for the electronic signature company came in better than expected. Shares of DocuSign up 13% on Friday. But Andy, expectations—they couldn't have been that high, right? Well, they were—they were fairly low, um, but still reasonably. I mean, still like they—you know—they grew 18 percent. That beat by eight million, revenues by 18 percent to 646 million. That beat by 18 million. But this is a really story of Alan Tegeson, the new CEO they brought in after Dan Springer left, um, starting his career off right, just kind of setting the expectations. And with a fairly nice quarter, earnings per share of 57 cents, that was down a little bit from last quarter, but a beat by 15 cents, Chris. Subscription revenues, that's the big bulk of DocuSign's business. Those revenues were up 18%. Their non gap gross margin was 83% versus 82% a year ago. So they're making some progress. On the on the cost side, dollar retention was 108 percent, but that was down from 121 percent. So I guess from the from the expectations for DocuSign, there wasn't a lot for this quarter. I think as long as it didn't get too worse, and their guidance is still reasonably still fairly low relative to what they were a year ago. I mean, they guided revenue growth for the quarter at 10 percent growth versus 35 percent a year ago. So they are really trying. Alan Tegeson's getting on board, meeting with a lot of 
clients, thinking through the product strategy, and trying to find out where DocuSign is, what they need to set it up. And when you think forward for DocuSign at a $50 stock, price of sales less than four times, forward earnings about 25 times, and they generate a lot of free cash flow if you add back the stock compensation. It's actually, you know, kind of you can start to build the valuation case. It's not going to be the massive grower it was during COVID. Alan talked about that in the call. Probably more of like, Single high digits revenue side might get some profit growth, and you can kind of start to build the case that wow, DocuSign might actually be turning this around. It's a ten billion dollar company. Do you think another company would build the valuation case for just buying DocuSign? Yeah, they might. It's interesting. Like Adobe wouldn't because there'd probably be huge regulatory concerns. But would Microsoft go in or Google, one of the or Alphabet? Um, they have their own kind of solution, but they're a small part of the business. So you might start to see a little bit of that. But I think thinking about document management. And life cycle management. Alan's looking ahead, and his he and his team start to see there's more value to to get from DocuSign clients, which continue to grow uh, than than they're than they're getting right now. Yeah, Microsoft's got their own regulatory concerns they're Absolutely. dealing with at the moment. We'll get to that later in the show, but. Let's go to Campbell's Soup. Shares hit a five-year high this week after first-quarter results reflected steady improvements in the company's supply chain. Campbell's Soup also exercising a little bit of pricing power, Ron. Yeah, three times during the past year, we were able to raise prices. Um, people's Soup is good food, it turns out. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, it's a pretty successful turnaround engineered by CEO Mark Klaus, who joined the company in January 2019. And some of the things he's done, he redesigned the can labels. He took away some out-of-favor ingredients, like high-fructose corn syrup. He introduced a new line of spicy soups under the Chunky brand that has been successful, a marketing campaign aimed at young men through social media, football, um, celebrities, Madden video games. Um, and it really seems to have paid off. Uh, sales were up 15% this quarter, better than expected, as you mentioned, really driven by higher prices. So, they do have that pricing power, which is nice to see for them. Um, not necessarily for the consumer, but for them. Um, gross margins down just a bit, um, but earnings up 19%. That's pretty impressive for a, 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 a soup company. Um, um, so, you know, they were able to raise outlook for the fiscal year in light of these results and improvements in the supply chain, as you said. And things look um, like they're you know, moving along full steam ahead. Chewy surprised Wall Street with a profit in the third quarter. The pet products retailer also raised fiscal year revenue guidance, and shares of Chewy up 7% on Friday, Andy. Yeah, uh, an impressive, profitable quarter boosted the guidance, like, like, like you said. Ended with 20.5 million active customers, um, up 30,000 gross customer ads, up 6% from just the previous quarter. Um, customer attrition stable from the COVID periods. Of course, many of us who were shopped on Chewies or got to know Chewies jumped in during the COVID, so they're still kind of dealing with that. Revenue's up 14.5%. EPS profitable at a penny versus a minus 8% estimate. Gross margin up 200 basis points, 28.4% versus 26%. Um, so, some really nice operational performance you're starting to see from Chewy, especially Chris on their fulfillment network. They spend a lot of money on, they're building that out. And that is, I think, becoming an advantage for them. They have greater the fulfillment network work. 
work drove 120 basis points of improvement of, of operating leverage. Their cost per order fell. So they're seeing these the investments they're making starting to pay off, not just with customer um, retention, but also with the profitability. I think it really speaks well for the initiatives they're putting forward at Chewy. Yeah, I don't know anyone who is a Chewy shopper who isn't pleased with the experience. But at some point, does retention need to not take a backseat to acquisition, but at some point, does the company need to prioritize new customer acquisition? Well, I think it's 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 still they have such a loyal customer base, and if you think about so much of their business, more than seventy percent is tied to auto ship, and a lot of it is tied to uh, the goods like food and and healthcare, the, the the really non discretionary goods. That's a real loyalty base. Now they do spend and continue to try to attract customers, and that's a big part of their business too. But I think really the, the continuing to serve that core member is going to be the key. Key um, value driver for, for Chewy and for shareholders going forward. Casey's General Stores is the third largest convenience store chain in America. And we can talk about the strong profits and revenue in their second quarter results, Ron. And we can talk about the role their beer, cheese, pizza played in those <laughs> results. But we should probably talk about the fact that shares of Casey's General Stores are up nearly 25% this year. Trading at their all-time high. It's very rare in this market environment. You can talk about that for a company. So that is very impressive. As is this report, very strong, despite some light revenue versus expectations, but still pretty good. Up 22% on the top line. Inside same store sales up almost 8%. Inside gross profit almost 9%. Driven by prepared foods, dispensed beverages, pizza, as you mentioned, fountain sales, all very strong. Alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages um, were strong. Same store fuel gallons, the outside business, uh, were just up slightly, but fuel gross profit was up 23% on additional profit per gallon for the company during the quarter. So that helped um, lead to a diluted earnings per share uh, number up a strong 42. Percent um, that that is a number you don't see very often in this business, um, and it allowed them to raise guidance. They expect same store sales inside to be approximately five to seven percent. They expect operating expenses to be uh, at the low end of their range, which is about nine to ten percent increase. Uh, so things look very very strong for Casey. They have twenty four hundred, a little more than twenty four hundred stores, and they should be able to continue to open new ones at a fairly good clip. We're not at saturation yet. Um, stock. It's not cheap at 25 times for a convenience store, um, but they really are doing quite well. I'm not a beer drinker, but why is beer, cheese, pizza not more widely available? <laughs> I'm hundreds of miles from a Casey's General store. How is this not? How are not? How are we not seeing more of this? <laughs> we will. We will have to go on a road trip. Interestingly, cheese was one of the highest priced goods that. Ate into their margins. That's that they had to deal with, and they were able to exhibit some pricing power to offset that. But it turns out cheese is expensive. Well, Got to put more beer in it. <laughs> Ron Gross, Andy Cross, guys. We will see you a little bit later in the show. But up next, a conversation with one of the top investors at BlackRock. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Where did cheese go? I don't know. Where did cheese go? I don't know. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Jay Jacobs is the U.S. head of thematics and active equity ETFs at BlackRock, a $100 billion investment firm. Rachel Warren caught up with Jacobs to get his thoughts on mega trends for investors to watch in healthcare, infrastructure, and electric vehicles. 
you just released BlackRock's 2023 outlook for thematics entitled Rethink Growth. So maybe to start today's discussion off, can you provide us with an overview of the biggest trends that you see shaping the market in 2023 and beyond? Sure. Well, I think a lot of investors are looking forward to 2023 after the year that we've had, which has left no asset class unscathed from equities to fixed income within equities. In particular, we've seen a sell off in growth. So we think a lot of investors have, well, a lot of investors have been asking us, you know, when is the right time to get back into growth? Uh, we've seen a sell off. Is it, is the time now? Is it later? Uh, the reality is with the macro situation today, we don't think it's a question of on or off with growth. Uh, we think it's about getting much more refined about one's exposures within the growth segment. Um, one of the reasons behind this is if you look at the last three years or so, growth has had a very high correlation to itself. Meaning if you look at the stocks within growth, they've tend to trade up in you know the second half of 2020 through 2021, and they've all uh, tended to trade down significantly in 2022. That's actually unusual. Usually you expect to see more divergence where some growth stocks do well and some don't. We believe 2023 will be more of that story, where as we don't see major Fed moves, either massive rate cutting or massive rate hiking, but more of kind of a, a tapered approach, uh, we think that's going to lead to more dispersion. Investors will need to get more targeted with their growth exposure to really isolate the opportunities that not only benefit from long-term tailwinds, but also can really thrive in a difficult economic environment. Yeah, you know, the report touched upon some really kind of fascinating key themes. And I, I want to dig into um, three of these themes, you know, a bit more. The, one of the things the report pointed out was one of the trends that investors will be witnessing more in 2023, beneficiaries of fiscal spending and other areas of healthcare innovation, and a third, counter-cyclical segments of the technology sector. And these are kind of three themes, tailwinds that are going to be really impacting the markets in general. So I'd love if you could dive into each of those a bit more and then, you know, also, how can long-term investors who are ideally focusing their capital on companies for a minimum of three to five years, how can we draw from these themes to make appropriate asset allocation decisions? Right. So as I was saying around the need to balance long-term growth opportunities with near-term economic uh, resilience, that is really the key overarching theme here. So when we look at the opportunity within, uh, within growth, it's not so much about chasing the biggest, growthiest, most disruptive idea anymore. It's about what is a technology or what is a theme that already has powerful tailwinds behind it and is sustainable in the sense that it's generating profit. There's people who are using this technology. It is, a, it is already in, you know, enjoying some level of adoption because this is not the environment where we think companies are going to be taking on a lot of risk to develop the next revolutionary product. Instead, it's what are the products we have today? How do we make incremental improvement? And how do we get more adoption and monetize it better within our customer base? So that's happening in infrastructure, where we have government really driving a lot of uh, uh, investment in areas like U.S. infrastructure, clean energy, and even electric vehicles and transportation. Uh, it's happening in healthcare, where we see a long pipeline of uh, revolutionary pharmaceutical drugs finally kind of reaching maturity. They're going to go from the R&D phase, hopefully, into being sold uh, and commercialized. And then finally, it's happening within technology itself. There's companies in robotics, there's companies in cybersecurity uh, that are not um, massive disruptors, uh, but they are staples in this type of economy where people are looking for automation to get more efficient or looking for cybersecurity to provide a level of digital security um, in, their, in their corporate world. 
you know, one of the things I'm getting from what you're saying here, which I think is fascinating, is there's been this idea, I think, uh, among investors for many years, especially when growth stocks were rising at such a rapid clip of you kind of looking for the next big thing. And what you're saying is very much kind of searching for those stable trends that are going to drive steady growth over the next year. And it doesn't necessarily mean looking for, you know, huge disruptors or, or super high growth businesses, but, but looking for where those durable tailwinds are. Is that right? Yeah. You know, in this, we love disruption. We love moonshot ideas. We love technological advancements, but we think that part of the technology ecosystem is likely to slow down. Uh, it makes sense with the macro environment. When interest rates are very low, it's cheap for companies to borrow Valuations are high, so it's you know companies want to grow because every dollar they bring in in revenue you know has a multiplier effect on their valuations. But that's not the case anymore. Uh, money is scarce is a scarce resource again. So where are they going to channel their spending? Uh, you know the innovators and just generally where are governments, consumers, and businesses going to spend their money? So it's just a more restrained environment. Um, and that makes us believe that you know kind of on the continuum of technological advancement, the opportunities are a little bit more in the where can money be made today profitably rather than what are the technologies 10 years from now. It could shift. If we end up in a falling rate environment at some point, we're not, we're not expecting that uh, anytime soon. But if we end up in that environment, you could see the pendulum shift again back towards those moonshots. But that's not where we are today. There was another section from the report that really stuck out to me. Um, and I, I quote, we do not believe heightened growth stock correlations are likely to persist. We anticipate a reversion back to historical norms, given that recent developments from the end of central banks, easy money policies to the beginning of a multi-year deglobalization trend may contribute to greater economic uncertainty and market volatility, end quote. And one of the things as well, the report also notes that growth in tech stocks may be undervalued relative to recent value. I think this is something that interests, you know, a lot of investors in our audience. We have a lot of you know, growth-oriented investors, and this is obviously uh, stocks that fit into this type of profile have been heavily depressed across sectors um, in recent months. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts here and on that section, but also how is this impacting how you invest in growth-oriented businesses moving forward? Well, look, again, it comes down to that finding the right opportunities in growth. It is not growth at all costs anymore. It just simply can't exist in a rising interest rate environment where growth is expensive. It's expensive to fund new ideas. But go back to a few years ago. I used to get these offers in the mail all the time for like $200 off a box of some subscription food service. Like that's a couple weeks of food. And they were giving it to people for free because they were so driven by how do we grow our consumer base so quickly. Money was so easily available to these high growth companies, that's just not where we are anymore. So it's not really about how do we get you know, a new consumer base and how do we grow that as fast as possible. It's how do we leverage what we already have? How do we take technology that already exists and get it into more people's hands? So um, you know, really at the macro level, uh, we think that it just it creates a little bit more of a restrained growth environment. There are absolutely opportunities out there. In fact, with the lower valuations, we think there could be some great opportunities out there. But it's not just about what is the new technology people aren't talking about yet. It's what are the technologies today that have a lot of potential that are still kind of in their adoption phase. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to another question as well. You know, what are your thoughts on how we as investors, we can survey companies operating in this current environment? You know, what are some things to look for to identify those quality companies that are just trading down in a volatile market from those that maybe don't actually have the underlying tailwinds to drive future growth? 
I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is where are the where's the revenue coming from in these companies and how resilient is that revenue in what could be a challenging economic environment in 2023? So one of the themes that we write about in this piece uh, is infrastructure as well as clean energy. Um, these are both powerful themes. You can look at the American Society of Civil Engineers gives the U.S. a C minus rating in infrastructure. You can look at the growth that's happening in clean energy and how fast we've added solar and wind to the grid. But the reality is what makes these themes exciting in this economic environment is how much is being funded by the federal government. I would feel a lot more concerned about those technologies if it was entirely dependent on consumer discretionary spending or corporate discretionary spending, because there's going to be less discretionary dollars if we enter into a flat or declining economy next year. But the government provides some level of stability in those cash flows. So we look at something like the infrastructure, uh, the uh, Inflation uh, Reduction Act uh, this year, which allocates about $370 billion towards clean energy and electric vehicles. We can look at the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act of last year, which is a $1.2 trillion bill. These are massive amounts of money that the government has set aside to invest in infrastructure and clean energy and electric vehicles. There's nothing certain in markets, but that gives us a higher level of confidence than depending on uh, consumers right now, given where we are in the economic cycle. What are some of the types of companies and ways as we're heading into 2023 that you're focusing on incorporating these long-term structural megatrends? Absolutely. So they're broad and varied. We, you know, within infrastructure, you know, we really like companies that are uh, not only the asset owners, the companies that run infrastructure today, but also the builders of infrastructure tomorrow to benefit from that government spending that is going to, you know, rebuild and repave highways and airports and seaports around the country. Uh, we like companies across the electric vehicle ecosystem that are not just building cars, but building the parts and batteries that go into those electric vehicles. Uh, in the healthcare space, we really like pharmaceutical companies that have done the research already. They spent the money. Now they can potentially monetize it with, you know, a successful trial result or FDA approval. So in particular, we like areas in genomics and neuroscience there. Um, and then in technology, you know, looking across robotics and cybersecurity, I think, you know, there's a lot of robotics companies that have been around for several decades. They are technologically advanced, but they are also established companies that are generating profits. Similarly, in the cybersecurity space, we think that's just a narrow cut of the software world uh, where there's profitability and there's long-term tailwinds. So there's a lot of opportunity out there, um, and it really requires kind of looking across the ecosystem and looking at powerful themes to find that opportunity. Jing, jing, jing. Are you looking for more investment ideas? Stick around, because after the break, Andy Cross and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. On Thursday, the Federal Trade Commission sued Microsoft to block the company's planned acquisition of Activision Blizzard. This was a move expected by many, including Microsoft's legal team. And that expectation was reflected in the fact that shares of both Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, Ron, were basically flat after the FTC made this announcement. And there are a few things we can get to, but I. Let's start with this. Where do you think this is going? In the end, where do I think it's going? These are hard to predict. Um, I think you know very often the company, the acquiring company, will cut a deal with the, with the 
Justice Department or the FTC and say, we'll divest this division or we'll stop this line of business in, or if you let this go through. And Microsoft has been saying, we will sign on the dotted line and make Call of Duty available to Sony PlayStation platforms if, if that's what you're concerned about. And that is what Sony is concerned about, and I guess the Justice Department as well. So, I think um, some contractual agreement um, to, to keep Sony competitive and Microsoft less monopolistic will end up occurring, and it will go through. But I'm by no means certain of that. <laughs> What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I th- I th- the more I think about this, I'm just wondering if Microsoft, sh- you know, they're not in the habit of kind of giving up things, um, <laughs> and they they've been they've been through plenty f- over the decades and decades, plenty of legal skirmishes and 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 challenges with with regulators and with lawmakers. Um, they haven't in a while, and it seems like this is a challenge that they may want to actually reconsider. Just seeing where this has come, I'm just picturing this army of lawyers and the the amount of time and effort and distraction in a world of that is continues to be very challenged for their their business to be able to compete in the cloud and and in a, such a large business to be able to just operate efficiently. And I'm just wondering if they really shouldn't maybe maybe just. Consider throwing the talent. It's just a you know for, from a, from an investor perspective might might not necessarily be the best use of capital and the best use of time at this point. That's where I was going to go next. If you're an investor, if you're a shareholder of Microsoft or Activision Blizzard, what should you be hoping for? Should you you know because there were I think there was at least one Wall Street firm that when this uh, action got announced by the FTC upgraded shares of Activision Blizzard thinking like oh this if the deal doesn't go through I'm more bullish on Activision Blizzard as a standalone company Oh, that, that's interesting. I think Activision as a standalone company is, a, is absolutely a fine company to own. Um, if you want to play the arbitrage as as Mr. Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway are doing with an eight percent stake, um, that got a little bit more risky just recently with this lawsuit. Um, there's twenty six percent upside to the acquisition price. Um, that gap has been around for a while because people were were uncertain. Um, there is some precedent from when Microsoft acquired Bethesda Softworks that they kind of backtracked on some assurances that they made to uh, the European Union, um, which I don't think the FTC appreciates. And so, the, the risk level of that of it going through went up a little bit. But uh, yes, if it doesn't go through, I think it's fine to bone Microsoft and Activision both as a standalone company, as standalone companies. Andy, how do you think Warren Buffett is feeling about his arbitrage play here? I, you know, he's a pretty smart guy and has a history of doing smart things. I mean, not always, but but uh, I, I think he's feeling okay. I mean, like there, you know, if Microsoft continues to push this and makes the divestures and takes the approach, like there's, I think there's a chance that it will continue to go through and they'll they'll be able to figure it out. Um, I just am thinking through as a shareholder I'm, of both companies whether I'd like to rather get a nice dividend from Microsoft and as opposed to this. Investment. So, still noodling through whether I think it's ultimately a good deal, and we'll have to see how it all plays out. One more thing to look forward to in 2023. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Rick Engdahl, is going to hit you with the question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? So, late September, I took late in September, I took a small position in Stanley Black and Decker SWK at around $78 a share. It's right where it is today. It hasn't moved around that much. I'm thinking about adding to the position, but this really is a turnaround to some extent. As most people know, they're a manufacturer of tools. 
uh, for both industrial and retail customers. Paid a dividend for 146 consecutive years. Uh, it's a dividend king, having increased its dividend for 55 consecutive years. Yield is at 4.2%. But they've got some issues. They've got weakening customers. They've got supply chain challenges that persist. They've got rising raw material costs. So the business is not great at the moment. They've got cost-cutting measures in place to try to improve profitability, management cut earnings. So you've got to take a little bit of of a flyer that this business will be right-sized. If that happens and the dividend is safe, although the debt level is high, we should keep an eye on that. I think you could get a nice dividend and some nice stock appreciation as well. I'm sorry. Did you say this company's been paying a dividend? They started paying a dividend in the 1870s. <laughs> Did you do the math? Is that 146 years ago? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Rick, question about Stanley Black and Decker. I think some of the tools that I have in my house are from the 1870s as well. <laughs> do, do I need to? Are you telling me I need to upgrade my tools in order to help with this dividend? For shareholders, yes, we would appreciate it. Thank you, <laughs> Andy Cross. What are you looking at this week? Well, I'm looking at a dividend payer, but not from the 1870s, but Houlihan Loki symbol HL. I is one of the leaders in mergers and acquisition. In fact, they're the largest. You know, we think Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley, but actually little Houlihan Loki, a $6.85 billion company, when you measure by numbers, is actually the leader in mergers and acquisition consulting. They do MA, they do global restructurings, they do fairness and value opinions. It focuses on much smaller deals, to be fair, than those big than those big players, but that's where most of the deals are. Most of the mergers and acquisition deals happen at the sub one. Billion dollar valuation, and that's really where Houlihan Loki specializes. They're very profitable. They've been growing more than 20% annually since 2017, um, generate very nice returns on equity, pay a little dividend. So, when I think about kind of how I want to allocate capital, I don't own shares, but I'm continuing to look at it. Stocks at 93 has doubled over the last three years. That beats the market, yields 2.3%, a pretty consistent dividend, only payout ratio of about 35%. So, they have lined to maybe increase. Said over time. Now, you know, recessions might actually hit this business a little bit, but also could could really boost their restructuring businesses as well. So they make most of their money in M and A, but they have a very stable uh, employer force. And when I look forward, I think, hey, this business actually could do pretty well to continue to support the dividend, get a little appreciation, and uh, and do shareholders pretty well. Rick, question about Houlihan Loki. When I heard the name, you know, when I hear Houlihan, I think Hot Lips. When I hear Loki, I think Marvel. Is that the first merger? I, I'm sorry, I just didn't know about this company. <laughs> that was not the first merger, um, but that's actually very interesting. Whether you think that uh, that they're tied to both Mash and to Disney, but it's not. What do you want to add to your watch list, Rick? Um, hmm. I think probably. I, I think I'll go with the tools. <laughs> well, good choice. Got to do some shopping first. <laughs> All right, Ryan Gross, Andy Cross, guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Drop us an email, podcasts at fool.com. Hit us with your year end questions. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Full Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Rick Engel. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.